Hey everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Gagne. How you feeling, Mark? I feel like uh, Woody lighting up on the set of Cheers. How you feeling? <laughs> I feel uh, I feel like oil, always in demand. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Underground? I am, I am like crazy busy right now, and it's like everything. And you know, it's, it's one of those things where uh, when I moved... You know, I went through a period of, like, not really, like, doing much, and then life just takes over. I think when I make life changes, I expect that my schedule will, like, free up permanently. And then as you settle in, it's, like, just gets more and more chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Mark, you've prepared it. Well, first of all, for all any new listeners, this is uh, this is Shitty Book Reports, and what we do is... Mark and I are both semi-prolific readers, although it's very hard to keep up uh, our reading with the podcast, the speed of the podcast. And uh, each week, uh, he brings one book, I bring one book. I don't know the book that he's going to talk about this week, but first we play some games. So, Mark, you have prepared something for this week. What's going on? Yeah, today's not a game. I just thought we could... I just have a question for you that I was just, you know... Normally, I, (laughs) I felt like an asshole... I was gonna ask you this last night, but I'm like, nah, I'll save it for the podcast. But right. so Trevor lives in Trevor lives in LA. It's uh, July sixth right now. Uh, so you you just put up with uh, two days in a row with earthquakes. How was that? Yes. Okay. That's yeah. what I wanted so, to talk about. <laughs> okay. So yeah, current events. So um, we don't always play games. Sometimes we just throw a topic uh, into into the fold. So. Well, the first thing I thought you were going to ask about is this is like July and July 4th is an interesting time in L.A. because of Independence Day. Um, Los Angeles is crazy for fireworks on any given day. Like you can drive around. Like That's something that I didn't really know about L.A. until moving here. But you can just drive around L.A. in the middle of February and people will be lighting fireworks off. Like in the middle of the really? night, you yeah, like in the middle of the night, you kind of hear like pops and hisses and stuff like that and it's like you're just hearing fireworks but july 4th is like you know you don't have to go anywhere to see a fireworks show literally dozens <laughs> of houses in every neighborhood and they do real fireworks you know like ones that go into the air and you guys explode. have the real ones yeah well i saw a video of someone who was flying into la on the night of the fourth and he just took like a, a shot oh. of, uh, you know the city and it looks so cool because you know they don't go up that high when i mean relative to when you're flying, like you can see, they just like little like little bursts coming off the uh, surface. It's really cool. Right. Yeah, that would be like a really crazy view. So add that on top of the, you know, the idea that on July fourth and July fifth we had earthquakes. Um, yeah, these have these have been my first earthquakes. First of all, I've never experienced. Well, actually, that's not true. There was one small one in on the east coast in New York um, when I lived there. Uh, but they're crazy. It's absolutely crazy. It's like you can't, you feel like, I personally feel like human beings are like so much smaller than we kind of like give ourselves credit for. Like when the earth starts shaking independent of, you know, anything and you just realize that the earth is just going to do whatever it wants. Yeah. So where Um, were you? What were you doing? The first one, I was, so July 4th, the first one, I was just laying in bed. I think it was like 10 or 11 in the morning, so I was obviously having a slow morning that morning, <laughs> uh, and 
honestly, I might have been reading. I might have been reading for the yeah. podcast, and um, <laughs> and then I thought, like, I didn't think like an earthquake. The page master. Yeah, I didn't think the earthquake was happening. I thought that my I live uh, up below my landlord, so I thought that my landlords were like moving something upstairs. Yeah, I was like, "Geez, what are they like doing up there?" And then all of a sudden, it kind of kicked in, and I was like, "Oh!" And I think the coolest sort of like detail from that first quake was I was in my room, and when I really realized that it was an earthquake was when I saw in my closet, you know, all your clothes are hanging on hangers. And yeah. my clothes were like swaying back and forth. Like, <laughs> yeah, like I saw were... videos. I saw videos of people's pools like sloshing around. Yeah, exactly. It like really it's it's like being on a boat. So everything yeah. was moving, and I was like, "Whoa!" That was like that was my first earthquake. It was really crazy. And then the one the next day, I happened to be working um, in an office that day, and I was just sitting at a desk at a computer editing and. Um, and shit started to move. And the, the second one was much longer. The first one was like 15 seconds or 30 seconds or something. The next one was like a full minute. It was like minute. a minute, right? Yeah. Yeah, with like, tri- and like, you, I thought it stopped and I was like, oh yeah, that was cool. And then the building started making noises because it started moving again. And I was like, okay, this is like <laughs> insane. I mean, there is like, I understand a lot of people get scared of them. I wasn't too scared or anxious, which is kind of opposite of my normal mode. Um, but there's just nothing you can do there's really like a sense of like like if the if if it starts to become serious and like you know the building that you're in god forbid or the neighborhood that you're in starts to like fall apart i just don't it's like a very uh real sense of powerlessness like there's nothing yeah. you can do do you have any books fall off your shelves no books no books nothing <laughs> has been that dramatic like nothing has like it's not really been that crazy. It's, uh, it's actually more like you're sitting there and you just start to feel weird. And then you know why. Yeah. Disorienting. Okay. Did you see Did you see any suspicious like animal activity in the days prior? Because you always hear that. That like, oh, like the neighborhood dogs like know about it a day before. No. Or like I don't the know. birds are acting weird and shit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't see anything like that. Nothing. Well, the the thing that I've kind of been interested in is when the first one happened, I was like, eh, it's like, you know, if anything really serious is going to happen, like the scientists are going to know. But that notion in my mind was sort of bullshit because obviously the radio and like different news channels have been, you know, earthquake 24-7 news coverage um, now. And the more I learn about it, the more I learn that like, I thought that if a big one was going to happen, that the seismologists would, like, let everyone know, like, that they are able to predict it, but that's just total bullshit. Like, <laughs> yeah. like all you hear on the radio is, like, this is this person, this expert person, and they're like, it's all probabilities. There's nothing that you can, like, predict about it. Uh, people have been saying that, like, the Japanese, there's a lot of earthquakes in Japan, so apparently the seismology in Japan is very advanced, and they're like, yeah, they can only, you know, their, their like, longest warning times are, like, a minute. <laughs> Not, like, a day or whatever. So, you know, eventually the San Andreas Fault is just going to crack in half, and Florida <laughs> will just be in the ocean. Not yeah, Florida. I mean, what am I saying? Florida. California. Florida, uh, Florida will be in the ocean, too. For yeah. For reasons. Yeah. Earthquakes are. I, I drove through a thunderstorm today. I don't know that. <laughs> you didn't ask me how, how I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, there haven't been any earthquakes there, have there? <laughs> Nothing as serious as the uh, 
as the earth-shattering events. <laughs> no, it was raining really, really hard, though. In recent California um, history. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so today this today uh, is episode number 24. I can't believe that we can now say that there's a full 24 hours of us talking about books. Um, full day. In the past, it might have been true that you could read through our text messages for 24 hours about books, but here it is, uh, episode number 24, a full day if you're so inclined to listen to shitty book reports. My book report this <laughs> week is... In a weird way, not a departure from what I normally read, but it does have like a bit of a twist. So I'm bringing yet another Japanese novelist to the table, but some people might argue that he is part Japanese novelist, but not 100% Japanese novelist. So I am bringing to the table Kazuo Ishiguro and his 1986 novel, An Artist of the Floating World. I know that you've heard of Ishiguro, but have you heard of this book, Mark? Not that book. Uh, so you're, when you're saying part Japanese, is that because isn't he from the UK or something like that? Yes. So is he, he is. He, lives there? he was born. Let me just dive right into my shitty book report here. <laughs> uh, he was born um, in 1954, and he was born in Nagasaki, Japan, but he moved to the UK in 1960 when he was five years old. So a lot of people would like, you know, and I think that I think that he probably um, I don't know how he feels about the notion that people would be like, oh, he's not really a Japanese novelist because, uh, you know, he notes, uh, you know, in interviews and stuff like that. And, and certainly a lot of uh, stuff that I could find online that his parents raised him in the UK but he was raised in a Japanese speaking household. So like, what is that real? Like, like, and I think probably an interesting perspective comes from that. You know, everything that goes into a major novelist life. And by the way, Ishiguro has won the Nobel prize for literature in 2017. Um, and the citation was whose novels in great have great emotional force and has uncovered the abyss beneath our illusory sense of the of connection with the world. So everything that, you know, goes into an author's biography or autobiography is, um, you know, of note. I'm sure Ishiguro wouldn't be the writer he is today if he hadn't grown up in the UK in a Japanese-speaking household. Um, his father was like some sort of advanced oceanographer, and that's why his work took him from Japan to, to the United Kingdom. Um, Ishiguro uh, himself, Kazuo Ishiguro himself, had a pretty normal, like, kind of UK education, like primary school, grammar school. Then he gets his Bachelor of Arts in 1978 from the University of Kent in English and Philosophy. Um, something that I think is really interesting and that I only learned um, at, as I did research for this novel is that so An Artist of the Floating World is a novel that happens in post-world Japan, and I'll get into the plot in a second. But uh, Ishiguro had actually written and published this novel before ever even returning to Japan. So, just the f so yeah, what is that? You, you start to develop memories or keep your yeah, memories after five right <laughs> <laughs> no yeah i don't know like it's kind of interesting like he he said in an interview you know that his first two novels which were 
um, A Pale View of Hills, and An Artist of the Floating World, they both occur um, in Japan, like the plots happen in Japan, but he wrote and published them before ever returning to Japan, which is like... You know, maybe that's why people give him shit of like, oh, like he's like trying to like. And what's interesting about what he'll say about these novels is that he'll say, you know, the Japan that I wrote about in his first two novels was in some ways an imaginary one, um, which actually kind of goes along. If there if there would be sort of like, I don't know if he has to have an excuse for writing a, a, Jap, a Japanese novel without having been to Japan, but if there was sort of an explanation for some of the workings of an artist of the floating world, I think it is almost appropriate that he would be someone who obviously knows about Japanese culture and Japanese familial um, relationships, but had never really been to Japan because, you know, let me get into the plot of the an artist of the floating world. Um, the plot of the novel is that the main character who is, and I'll obviously butcher these names, uh, the main character is Masuji Ono, and he is the narrator and the protagonist of the novel, so this is not a third-person novel, it's a first-person narration. It deals with themes of, you know, having an unreliable narrator and stuff like that, and I think that he was, Ishiguro was learning and experimenting with the unreliable narrator, um, so the main character, Masuji Ono, he is, you start to like slowly learn throughout the novel that he is a famous painter, um, and he's living in post-World War II Japan, but you kind of slowly learn, not through him narrating it, not through him even admitting it because you're inside of his own psychology, but he is basically someone who rose to prominence by painting the propaganda posters of like pre-World War II empirical Japan. So he's someone who has to live with the fact that he went through the training of a fine artist, usually a very sort of progressive and liberal social circle. And he basically becomes a a very rewarded and applauded and respected propaganda poster painter and the people who respected and admired him are obviously no longer in power. So he is you're you're within the mind of this narrator who throughout the novel, you know, he has two daughters, Noriko is his youngest daughter, Setsuko is his eldest daughter who also has um, a child, Ichiro, his, his, is his grandson. And um, there's a few other relationships throughout the novel, like uh, his son-in-law and stuff like that, and some of his former students. And it's really interesting, because as you're reading it, you're sort of like, well, these people are kind of like either aloof, or they're like mean to him, or they're, they like act kind of strange. And then the more you learn about the relationship and how his career sort of developed into being, you know, literally a poster child for something that the society at large doesn't really approve of anymore, it all really starts to make sense. Like, why was his daughter so standoffish? Or like, why was the son-in-law like so weird? Or why did he say those things? 
And the reason why you can't really learn those things, you know, up front is because it doesn't just say on the page, like, they didn't like me because of X, Y, Z reason. It's more like he's a crotchety old man and it's like, oh, she left the house or, you know, she did this or she said this one thing and then left the room. And you're kind of like, well, why? Like, why are they being so weird? And then you kind of slowly learn, like, oh, he's, like, in some ways, like, kind of a monster. Um, because he was painting all these things. And you also learn a lot about his his um, artistic upbringing because that's what he keeps reaching into the past. Um, another cool thing, uh, a thing that garnered a lot of respect for me, um, our regular listeners will know that I am a huge fan of Proust. And uh, something that really made me elevate Ishiguro in my mind is that my particular edition of An Artist of the Floating World had an introduction where he um, called out that he wrote this novel very much in trying to rip off Proust's style of sort of personal narrative that also flows in between like past and present indiscriminately. Um, and, okay. and he's trying to learn about and deal with memory. He actually says in the introduction to my edition that reading Proust's, uh, the first novel in remembrance of things past he says you know i learned more from reading that book than i did my entire like postgraduate degree in creative writing (laughs) um so he's basically you know he admitted to basically you know and and you can see that i could see that i was glad that i read that in the introduction before i read the book which is something pretty rare usually i'll read the introduction to a book if the if the author themselves have read have written it would you say you do that yeah, uh, I, I would say I set a limit if it's like a certain if it's if it's like ten pages long, I'll probably skip it. <laughs> I think yeah. I have I think I have a set limit in my mind of like. I like to last for the intro. I don't know. I like to go back if it's someone who isn't the author who is writing it from a like a retrospective type of view, but if it is the author themselves, then I like to read it even before I read the novel because I think they're usually pretty respectful of what what not to give away or what to give away and stuff like that. Yeah. So, sometimes it, sometimes though, even if they're not giving away stuff, they're talking as if you've already read it, like talking about, you know, yeah. feelings that it creates or, you know, it, it's kind of strange sometimes. Yeah. It can affect, I don't know why, but for some reason yeah. my, when I read an artist, the floating world, I read the introduction first. Um, it is worth mentioning too. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this, Mark, but I actually ended up reading this book for the first time, and I think it was one of my—I think it was my first Ishiguro book. I read it because I was very recently living in a new city when I lived in London, and I joined a book club that I went to. And this is the only meeting that I attended. This is the only (laughs) one I tried to keep on top of it. And I actually did, I was on their email list and I actually did read a few more books that the, that the, um, that the book club met for, but this was the only meeting that I actually managed to go to. Oh, you just had poor attendance. I had poor attendance. (laughs) Um, and so that's worth mentioning, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't bring this podcast, the book to the podcast if I didn't like it. I think An Artist of the Floating World is really cool. I think it's worth mentioning, too, as one of my last things that I'll say is the story behind that amazing title. Don't you like that title, An Artist of the Floating World? Yeah, um, that's cool. It paints it's, a picture. 
it's a very mysterious title and a lot of people talk about the title and um one of the cool things about it i think it comes from a translation of the floating uh, like the quote unquote floating world is um you you learn throughout the narration that musuji one of the grand masters that he studied from someone he really respected as he was coming up through art school and um you know before he starts his big corporate propaganda career one of the artists that he learns from he gives these lectures about how um he used to engage with the underworld of Japanese urban society. So basically one of his professors was like, I would sleep with prostitutes. I would hire prostitutes and paint them, which we all know is a part of art history. If you go to any art exhibit where there's nudes, uh, you know, an exhibit of nudes on the wall and stuff like that for many periods of, of time in painting, that's what painters did. They would find prostitutes whether they would sleep with them or not is probably from art, like a difference from artist to artist, but they would often hire prostitutes to be models for them. And that mm -hmm. that's the story of, of um, one of Masuji's teachers and the translation of that underworld, or there's like a Japanese character that has to do with um, the underworld and it, and it translates to the floating world. So that was the, the narrator kind of sees himself not only um, emulating his teacher, but also kind of respecting the fact that he was an artist of the floating world. But that title kind of folds back in on itself because what he really made his money and his career from is the exact opposite of his youthful intentions. So he sometimes, you know, he'll go back, he goes back throughout this book and like he tries to confront one of his old classmates and one of his old students who, um, you know, he believes that people have like betrayed him throughout his life. Um, and it's just, it's a very interesting, I, I think like Ishiguro's kind of at the most base kind of thing that he's trying to do in this novel is he say I think he said to himself what if I assumed the psychology of someone who I don't really respect that much um you know the 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 equivalent today would be somebody who you know writes some emotional and insightful novel about somebody who is you know blindly conservative with you know the nationalism and the and and the stuff that's happening here in america you know like what would happen if someone wrote some beautiful novel about like a rabid trump supporter you know and how do the people in their lives kind of tiptoe around the idea that they have these kind of whether it would be you know on the conservative side of things or on the liberal side of things how do people sort of tiptoe around you and what are your internal conversations when you are that person or one of those people? Um, and it's something that you don't like, you know, Ishiguro doesn't, like I said, he doesn't put it on page one. Like this is a novel about a conservative man whose family hates him. It's like, you don't even, you really do only understand that stuff about halfway or maybe even two thirds through the book. And then you start to turn back um, and kind of think like, oh yeah, his daughter was acting so weird because he's <laughs> weird. Like he is someone that they don't really respect that much. So it's a very interesting book. 
an artist of the floating world, and I will give you my one-star review. So John Himes on Amazon. I actually had to go into two-star reviews for this because there was only three one-star reviews, and all of them were really boring. Oh, that's a good sign, though. This one's not much better. Uh, John Himes gives it two stars. He says, flat. He says, I don't like the characters. His language is kind of boring, and I had much higher expectations. If you're interested in Japanese literature, try someone else. Uh (laughs) So, uh, yeah. You're looking for a pop-up book, buddy. He's looking for a pop-up. Yeah, it's John Himes. Why don't you go (laughs) buy a pop-up book, so maybe Dr. Seuss or something (laughs) like that, because obviously I'm in favor of Ishiguro. Other novel, I have read his other novels, Never Let Me Go. Um, I'm waiting to read his first novel, Remains of the... Oh, no, Remains of the Day is his third novel, uh, Pale View of Hills, I hear good things about. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a huge person in the literary world right now. Like I said, he won the Nobel Prize in 2017, so... Yeah, I didn't he's, know it was that, re- that recent, that's cool. Yeah, he's doing all right for himself, and, uh, yeah, Ishiguro, check him out. Yeah, I wonder how I wonder how accurate his you know descriptions of Japan are. I, I imagine that it all comes from you know stories from his parents or his you know relatives. Yeah, it's, that's like an interesting thing that I didn't learn until I was researching for the podcast. But yeah, he hadn't been to Japan. But you can see like my description of the novel in a weird way. That's probably one of the only novels that 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 might actually help in a weird way you know what i mean like he's his narrator is imagining the entire world around him and as you reread the book or like once you turn back once you really know what's going on it's like oh yeah that neighbor was like treating him really weird everyone was like everything was really strange so i think that in a way ishiguro could kind of get away with the fact that he you know wasn't exactly inundated with japanese culture um, while he was writing this, but at the same time, that's not really fair to say because he was raised in a Japanese-speaking household in in the middle of the United Kingdom. So, unique perspective, and you know, part of the setting of this book is imaginary. Part of the setting of all books is imaginary, uh, and maybe more so with this book because the narrator is uh, you know bullshitting his way through the idea that people still respect him. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Good job. Nice book. Awesome. And and short. Like that was one of the thing that was one of the reasons why the book club chose it because it was like you could definitely read this in a month. You could read it in like a week. Yeah, what did the book club think? Do you remember people loved it? I remember people not liking it as much as I did. Um he definitely got the Proust bump of respect from me. So like once I had read that in the introduction, I was like I'm ready for this shit. Um <laughs> but I remember people yeah, they didn't love it, but they also kind of seemed like a group of people who didn't really like much. Oh, okay. They were talking about, Cyber like, every... Critical. Yeah, all the other books that they had read. Like, I, it kind of seemed like they hadn't read a book in a long time that they had liked, because they, like, they kept going back over other ones that they had re- read, and they were like, that one sucked, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, negative. All right. <laughs> so, what do you got on deck? Cool. Uh, so... You were talking about your book is part real, part imaginary. I think the one I have is, is entirely imaginary. But um, nice. First off, just a question: like, what do you think about pairing? Do you pair authors in your head, like, you know, group them together, like there's some kind of high school clique or something? I mean, like, that that do, that's done automatically by like genre. But do you do you do that like cross genre or you know? Yeah, yeah. I would say I, I would say it also works 
unfortunately with like nationality and stuff too you know like when you yeah. know like when you're reading japanese authors you know that's how I, that's how you go from one to the other you know would i have known about ishiguro if it wasn't for murakami would i have known about you know mishima if it wasn't for or uh you know yeah i think i do link them together especially like yeah. russian authors too you know like dostoevsky and tolstoy like come on yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I think definitely do that too, uh, by country. Yeah. Um, but so the the author I brought to talk about today, I pair him with Tom Robbins. And now that I think about it, they're both American, so I guess it's by country again. Uh, gender, I don't know. So <laughs> I'm talking about Christopher Moore. Remember him? Okay. Have you read yeah, Lamb? I- yeah. Oh my God, that book is hilarious. I'm if not any, doing if, lamb. Yeah. Yeah. If <laughs> anyone ever, today, but. if the the top my top two answers for hilarious books are Confederacy of Dunces and Lamb. Yeah, Lamb. I, I have a copy right here. It was like the funniest thing in the world in like uh, late middle school, maybe. I think that's when I read it. Yeah, that's you're actually. Our, uh, you, our friend group now, was obsessed with it. Now that you bring up the age in which we read it, I wonder if it would be funny now. Oh uh, yeah, I, I mean it's been a while, but um, so yeah, I like I like Lamb a lot. I've also read his like he has like a vampire saga, um, Twilight. Like, uh, no, <laughs> uh, but but predates that. It, it, it's they're very funny. It's like blood. They're all like stupid, funny like love story kind of things, but um, mm-hmm. tongue in cheek. Like they're called blood sucking fiends. Uh, you suck. And bite me like that's that sort of stuff. He, he's a he's a really talented uh, comedy writer. He's definitely good, definitely good at channeling voices that are not his own. Like nice. his some his best characters are just like angsty teenage girls or whatever, and just like for whatever reason, this this middle aged guy is able to like <laughs> just um, have like such a unique voice and, and you know stuff like that. But so just a little more about him before I get into the book I'm actually covering. Uh, so he's in his 60s now. Um, he's been publishing novels since 1992. And when I think about him, I would like it would seem that something by him would have been adapted to the screen by now. He's got a lot of stories that I think could work, but I don't think anything has or is going is you know in the plans to to be adapted. But uh, he's also a good follow on Twitter. I'll say that I'm pretty sure we're I'm pretty sure we're following him. Um. So anyways, the book I have this week is his 2003 novel called Fluke. Fluke. Uh, which is, it, it's, it's Fluke, colon, or, or, comma, I know why the winged whale sings. Hmm. So I have an incredibly basic plot summary here. I don't want to give away a lot, but, so, my summary is, uh, <laughs> marine biologist Nate Quinn works in Hawaii with a team studying humpback whales and the songs that they sing. One day, he spots a whale with Bite Me painted on its tail. And Nate realizes that someone is trying to sabotage his research. And from there, it takes, you know, it's a bunch of Tom Robbins-esque turns where it becomes, you know, bigger than the world. Kind of, like, that sort of of thing. But um, I just want to read... Christopher Moore's his his intro to the book, so this is isn't actually in the book that the version that I have. I just you know found it online mm-hmm. on his site. 
What do most people know about whales beyond that fact that they're big and wet? Not much, right? Well, having been a scuba diver for a long time and lived next to the ocean for some 25 years, I thought I really should learn more about these big wet things that keep swimming by. So I started learning about whales, and more important, the people whose business it is to learn about whales. Something happens when you spend any amount of time on the ocean with people who have a less than conservative view of how one should make his living. You begin to feel that adventure is its own reward. You begin to measure experience rather than sustenance as the goal. And you begin to get a feeling for those adventurers you left behind in your childhood. Those salty rapscallions sprung from the imaginations of Jack London and Jules Verne and Robert Louis Stevenson. Even the twisted eccentrics of Joseph Conrad and the ancient undersea beings of H.P. Lovecraft. And you begin, too, to wish you'd uh, brought along some Dramamine. As a writer, you get it the same way that you got it when you were a kid, and there's not much you can do but share the adventures. So I got it, and I'm passing it on to you, that fear recalled in comfort that is called the adventure story. So hmm. Christopher Moore, I know that he lived, this, so this, the book takes place in Hawaii, and I know that he lived in Hawaii for a long time, and I think this is one of those books that he like did a lot of research for. Uh, because like the first the first part of the book kind of like tells you a lot about the like the background of like what these people are doing you know studying the, the like tracking whales studying them and you know their their songs and analyzing and all that stuff but anyways i i liked this book but it, it didn't grab me like his other work but it mm -hmm. was still you know a fun read so instead of focusing too much on the book itself I discovered something that caught my attention uh, and I, you know, it was the biggest thing I was thinking about because of this book. So it's, it's right on the very first page. He starts off this book, page one, with a, the dictionary definition of the word fluke. Okay. So let me read that right here. Fluke, one. So there's like four definitions, four different definitions of this word. Right. One, a stroke of good luck. Two, a chance occurrence, an accident. Three, a barb or barbed head as on a harpoon. Four, either of the two horizontally flattened divisions of the tail of a whale. Ooh. So, that was so crazy to me because in some way, like, the multiple definitions basically encapsulate the entire plot of the book. Or, like, you could consider it, like, a starting off point where you could, like, derive the entire plot from these words. Um, so, you know, I just, I started thinking about a little experiment of, like, you know, generating a plot from other words. You know, other words with multiple definitions. Mm -hmm. So, I sort of have a game that I played by myself, I guess. <laughs> uh, dictionary, dictionary-based plots. So yeah. So I was thinking, what about what if you had a book called Float? Float. So this word, you know, it's got multiple definitions, like uh, you know, anything that rests on the surface of a fluid. Uh, there's one I didn't know about: a quantity of earth eighteen feet square and one foot deep. Whoa, um, like a f like so like your your yard can be measured in floats. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> However deep you of of, of uh, earth you own. Um, I wonder if there are I, rules around that. Are there rules around like when deep? you own property, how deep it goes? 
probably like a basement level maybe you have like eight feet or something i don't know right or if you dig a well i don't, I don't know maybe there, there are definitely probably rules about it uh all right another definition to rest to to be buoyed up to uh to move quietly or gently on the water uh to pass over and level the surface off with a float while plastering is kept wet <laughs> Uh, to support <laughs> to support and sustain the credit of as a commercial scheme or a joint stock company so as to enable continued business like you float someone some money right so i took all these definitions i was thinking all right let, let's generate a plot from this so i was thinking it could be it is a good it's a great exercise because as you like as you're describing the word float it's like if you tried to kind of incorporate all of that into a novel it would have to have like a construction worker but also like a wall street guy yeah yeah like a, and like you know water and yards and whatever <laughs> so so here's what i came up with so this could be an an action-packed it's a thriller similar to uh the 1994 uh classic speed where like a, a crazed maybe flat earth society they a ter- like a flat earth society terrorist sleeper cell they rig up like a, a parade float or something that some business is sponsoring. Um, it has to be like, it has to be held, it has to be held completely level or it will explode. And like the Keanu character, like pilots it off a pier or something into the water. Right. And it's all during the parade, right? With like tons yes. of people around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's one you can, um, Free ideas here, folks, for the writing community. <laughs> uh, how about a book called Tail? So you got, you know, the terminal, usually flexible posterior appendage of an animal. Uh, the back, last, lower, or inferior part of anything as opposed to the head. Uh, the side of a coin opposite to that which bears the head. Uh, there's a surgical term for tail, which is a portion of the incision at its beginning or end, which does not go through the whole thickness of the skin and is more painful than a complete incision. I had no Ooh. idea about that one. There's a musical definition of a tail. Uh, you, you're, you play guitar, like, you know what I'm talking about? The part of the no. musical note which runs oh, perpendicularly yeah. upward or downward from the head. Yep. Um, so what I came up with that was, like, I don't, I don't know, I was picturing, like, a surgeon, maybe, who makes... He makes all of his ethical decisions via coin flip. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to operate on a, a baby well, sur- with a tail. Surgeons also listen to music while they operate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I've always found that away. I've always found that really fascinating. You know, like like what what a surgeon would listen to. What would you want a surgeon to be listening to while they're like working on your innards? <laughs> Like yeah, would it be would it be disconcerting if like when you were you know on the operating table and then the surgeon turned on like speed metal? Yeah, I focus I focus best to like Weird Al. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, all right, another book here. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll use this one. Scale. You know, you mm-hmm. got fish scales, reptile scales, the uh, and incrustation deposit on the inside of a vessel in which water is heated as a steam boiler Ugh, talk um, about living in the united kingdom ishiguro uh, and myself what the uh, so many english people have the nastiest kettles yeah you gotta descale that like yeah but a lot of them don't yeah 
like any given office building or like you're a guest at someone's house you take a look in their kettle and like the inside has like fucking like it looks like an aquarium in there yeah it's so (laughs) gross gets used like 12 times a day yeah yeah um uh another definition to scatter to spread there's another one gun a gun term to clean as the inside of a cannon by the explosion of a small quantity of powder um, you can scale something by ascending it, like with a ladder or a series of steps. It's a measurement for you, uh, instrument for measuring weight. And another musical one, you know, the graduated series of all the tones, ascending yeah. or descending yeah. from the keynote to its octave or whatever. Um, and you know, relative dimensions, scale, and all that stuff. That's a. This is a complicated one. I couldn't come yeah. up with too much. This is a pension novel. <laughs> this is like, a, you know. Yeah, I was picturing like maybe like a fictionalized version of the invention of the fish ladder at like a hydroelectric dam. You know what I'm talking about? Like the like the fish when they swim up swim upstream, they can't make it past. They, you know, they run into a dam. Like they had to invent something to like let mm-hmm. them cross. Is that a thing? And a fish ladder? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Maybe at a hydroelectric dam or like a the outlet of a nuclear power plant, maybe. Yeah, there would be a lot of math involved with that. Yeah, the guy's like maybe a musician or something. Yeah, I was going to say, and he plays (laughs) violin for some reason. Yeah, and he's a a Civil War reenactor. He's got (laughs) to operate the cannon. Operate the cannon, yeah, yeah. Uh, I got a couple more here. I was just fucking around with this. Uh, You get a book called Murder about like crows killing people. Crows Um, killing, well, that's been done. Birds. Yeah. But he didn't. He didn't call it murder. He's got to pick up on the dictionary game. Uh, actually, I don't know what that was. A Daphne du Maurier story. I forgot about that. So I don't know what she. I was. It. I was about to reference and say that I've lost all respect for Hitchcock because it's all about Daphne du Maurier. <laughs> oh, here's here's the last one. Um, season, of course, you know the divisions of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, a period of time. As regard its fitness for anything contemplated or done, uh, that which gives relish, um, to fit for taste, to render palatable, to give zest and relish to, to become mature, <laughs> to become hard and dry by the escape of the natural juices, or be <laughs> penetrated with <laughs> other substance as timber seasons in the sun. Um, so this is definitely like a coming of age story about like a chef who learns how to <laughs> properly season his food. And, you know, he, he learns a little bit about life along the way. <laughs> and, you know, the seasons pass. And the seasons menu changes. Pass. Ooh, a classy <laughs> chef. So, um, my basic review of Fluke is that I got way more caught up in this game than I did in the book. <laughs> I, I mean, I like... <laughs> you sound I like you're his... giving a one-star review. <laughs> I like his other stuff more, like Lamb is hilarious, but I just, I couldn't get into it that much. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. it, you are right, though. It, like, I would, I guess I would, the way that you described the plot of Fluke, that does sound like a Dom Robbins type of thing. Like, they would yeah. they would hang out with each other. Like, to, to group them together makes sense. Yeah. I kind of view it that way in my head. Just the, maybe the sarcasm that they have, or like, uh, their narrative voice is sometimes very similar, but... um. So I did find a one-star review to close it out, and it's a very short one. It's from John, who says, whales aren't funny. (laughs) 
<laughs> and would you agree? What do you think? Let's just talk about whales for a little bit. Do you like, um, whales have you ever been whale watching? Whales can be funny. No, I've never been whale watching. I actually, um, my aunt and uncle are very much into whale watching, so much so that they go on these, like, there are these types of cruises that aren't, like, it's not even recreational like a normal cruise. Like, they have nice food and nice activities and stuff, but when people say they go whale watching and then they see, like, a few whales, my uncle goes on these cruises that are, like, part of, um like studies that people are like some people on the boat are there for scientific purposes and other people are there like basically on a cruise to like fund the research and they oh, yeah. see they see like so many whales like when people go whale watching it's like yeah we saw like two whales this afternoon they go on these cruises where they see like a hundred whales like they go into <laughs> their they get special access for scientific purposes to go into their like breeding grounds and stuff like that oh it's true um and it's like somewhere off the coast of mexico but their pictures and stuff from it like i i know that some people would be really inspired like to go see it because my uncle has literally touched whales like you can like touch them and like they like come up what? to the boat with their calves and stuff like that but <laughs> they are terrifying whales are fucking terrifying am i wrong like they're huge yeah i don't like seeing the pictures from their trips where it's like you like its body is like disappearing like into the deep ocean like <laughs> and they're literally just on like a little boat like right next to these whales and it's like to me it's like a little bit terrifying i've also had the classic i've had the classic dream of being capsized by a whale like that's like oh. a very common that's a common sign of psychological dream when stuff is like <laughs> overwhelming you, and I've had that dream. And uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not too into whales up close, but I do think that they're gorgeous. I mean, they're, yeah. they're crazy. Yeah, they could just passively destroy you, though. Yeah. Another thing that I know weirdly know about whales is that whales are one of the only things, like literally on Earth, that multiple nations have agreed. Um, like sanctions on like you know how like we can't seem to you know get trade straight with oil or we can't you know like do like all these different things with a few outliers obviously japan being a very famous country for still whaling um yeah i think they very recently started again yeah they've there's a few countries that are like outliers but by and large one of the most like unanimous like agreeable things that many 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 nations on earth have agreed to is to not kill whales which is pretty impressive yeah i think there's respect there well but i mean it's interesting that we would but, respect what like we don't really respect anything more than the almighty <laughs> dollar but i know that that's a hard but there are, there are countries out there, America included, that could be making money off of the destruction of whales, and they don't yeah. do it as hardcore as they could, which is pretty pretty fascinating. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, whales. <laughs> protect the whales. Also, we have, we have one of our favorite bands in common has very much to do with whales. <laughs> yeah, flying whales. Flying if anyone's whales. ever been to a... Gojira show, yes. French metal band. French metal band and environmental activists in the name of whales. I wonder if they still do whale stuff or it was just like that one period of time. Well, they were uh, they uh, were hooked up with uh, Sea Shepherd, who I don't think is able to do what they used to do. As yeah, far as the, didn't they uh, name one of their whaling? vessels after the band? 
Yeah, yeah, they have a, they have one of their vessels called Gojira. Yeah, interesting. We'll throw a link up on Twitter. That's a good song. Yeah, get people <laughs> hooked on. If they never heard Gojira before, yeah. <laughs> I love that imagery though. Flying whales. It's pretty cool. Nice. So yeah, Christopher Moore, Fluke, two thousand three. I'm gonna re reread Lamb again. See how it holds up. Yeah, that's definitely worth investigating. Yeah. All right. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Instagram, and Twitter. We're on iTunes now, too, right? Yeah, we're on iTunes, and all of these things you have to search SBR, the podcast, not Shitty Book Reports, because, you know, no one lets you swear anymore. What is this world coming to? The clean version. Mm-hmm. parental advisory uh you can also <laughs> email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com send us your comments your suggestions your corrections uh whatever you're feeling you can you can be you listening can be the first person to send us an email <laughs> <laughs> don't give that away anyway uh, <laughs> thanks for you. listening <laughs> peace